You're listening to the Heritage Talks podcast. Today, we're listening to Marguerite Hill, who will talk about fancy dress in New Zealand museum and library collections. Kia ora koutou, ko Mark from Research Central Tene. Welcome to the Heritage Talks podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for tuning in. The Heritage Talks podcast is produced regularly for your education and enjoyment. Talk notes are found on the Talks page at soundcloud.com. You will find links to the images referred to in this talk here. Come back whenever you like and feel free to add the podcast to your favourite RSS feed or iTunes. All links are in the talk notes. Now we invite you to sit back and enjoy the talk. Why do people dress up in fancy dress? Is it a way to escape everyday life? Is it an opportunity to be someone else for a while or to show part of your personality which isn't usually seen? It can be an opportunity to express your creativity and imagination in ways that you're not usually allowed to. Fancy dress can be fun. It gives adults a chance to play and allows people to step outside of their everyday lives. However, it also reveals aspects of New Zealand history and culture, touching on subjects like patriotism, leisure, First World War fundraising, consumption, creativity and home sewing. Fancy dress balls can be traced back to medieval masked balls and pageants, which we often associate with carnival since the 15th century, and often you think of Venice. Later, the very rich took the opportunity to have their portraits painted in historical clothing or as classical figures, often choosing a person who they felt they felt they shared values or traits with. Sometimes they were painted in classical costume to express their educated tastes, or in Turkish or other national costumes to show they were well-traveled. Others just took the opportunity to be portrayed in a different way to usual. The Victorians were very fond of fancy dress balls. Queen Victoria and her consort Prince Albert held three fancy dress balls in the 1840s and 1850s. One was recorded in this portrait by Edwin Landseer. Here Victoria and Albert are dressed as 14th century King Edward III and his consort, Queen Philippa of Hotain, at their ball costume of the 12th of May, 1842. And I think it's quite interesting that um, Albert is portrayed as the king here and she's the consort, um, because that was obviously quite a complicated thing in their life. Um, And apparently they recreated this ball in the current Victoria television series. I don't know if we've seen that yet. Oh, cool. Um, Fancy dress balls were also all the rage in the USA in the 19th century. In 1883, a fancy dress ball to celebrate the housewarming of Mr. and Mrs. W.K. Vanderbilt cost around 250,000 US dollars, which is six million dollars in our money today. The ball was intended to raise the profile of the Vanderbilt family, who were considered by some members of New York society to be new money. One of the costumes worn at the ball survives at the New York Museum. Um, The gown worn by the hostess's sister-in-law, Mrs. Cornelius Vanderbilt, represents electric light, a relatively new concept in 1883. The gown actually lit up. There was some kind of torch arrangement among the skirts, which I don't want to think about from a health and safety perspective. 
and the dress is embroidered with silver metal embroidery and spangles, which would have caught the light beautifully. Not to be left behind, fancy dress balls also took off in New Zealand. In this drawing from the Auckland Graphic from the 1860s, a fancy dress shows a fancy dress ball at the Coral Hall here in Auckland. With the help of a zoom, you can see sailors and bishops, Elizabethans and Uncle Sam. Fancy dress balls were happening in rural areas too. An isolated Rawini, the New Zealand observer and freelance, depicts the attendees of Dr Lowe's fancy dress ball in 1897. Dr Lowe himself went as Monte Carlo, Mrs Bagger Birch was knight, and Miss Kitty Martin was a gypsy fortune teller. You can also see some clowns, a police constable and old mother Hubbard. By the end of the 19th century, fancy dress balls, pageants and spectacles were popular with all classes and were often both an opportunity to raise money for charity and to dress up. They were especially popular during the First World War and were often displays of patriotism with people favouring costumes such as Britannia. This spectacular children's costume is held by Auckland War Memorial Museum and was worn by Leslie Smythman, then aged six, at the Children's Day Parade. The parade was part of the Queen Carnival, which was raising funds for wounded soldiers, and was held at the Domain in December 1915. Many of the displays were patriotic. 3,000 children performed in formation to create a giant Union Jack flag. I don't know how you'd do that. Um, our little man here was dressed as Lord Nelson, and the sash across his chest reads, England expects. A clear call to arms for young men to join the war effort. We know that the costume was made by Leslie's mother and that it was later adapted so her daughter could wear it as well. The Auckland Town Hall was the site of another fancy dress spectacular. In 1921, an Eastern Garden Fair was held to raise funds to send a Plunkett nurse to Palestine, as it was then known. As you can imagine from the name, the Eastern Garden Fair was themed as exotic and Middle Eastern, with a dash of Oriental decoration thrown in. 200 young ladies young Auckland ladies dressed in Eastern dress served food and drink to the ticket holders. There was a bazaar, a tea garden and dancing. The event was so popular that 500 people had to be turned away with almost 6,000 people attending over two days. Almost 2,500 pounds was raised by the event and they were successful in their mission. They eventually established three infant welfare centres in Palestine. Those who could afford it had their costumes made by high-end couturiers like Worth and Poiret. Mrs Cornelius Vanderbilt's electric light dress that we saw earlier was made by Worth. For the very rich, fancy dress balls were a form of conspicuous consumption and there was real competition between guests to have the best costume. Guests and their costumes were thoroughly detailed in the social pages of newspapers. Theatre costumers also made and rented out costumes but the majority of people made their costumes at home with help from family. By the end of the 19th century, there were various guides available for ladies and gentlemen who wanted to make a, smash, a splash in fancy dress. One essential guide was by Arden Holt, and this has been digitised by the Internet Archive, so you can go have a browse yourself if you want. Fancy dresses described, or what to wear at fancy balls, had been reprinted several times by 1887. There were a vast array of options, as just one page spread shows. We have everything from how to dress as a cloud with a silver lining, through to Colleen Braun, who was a fictional character. However, the reality for most people was that you, or your mum, were the ones making your costume. 
Fancy dress costumes reveal the creativity and practical skills of the people who made them. Um, from looking at historical photos, you can see that an element of Kiwi ingenuity was at play when creating fancy dress costumes. Necessity is the mother of invention, and many photographs show costumes that have been thrown together from what is available, whether it's another gender's clothing, crepe paper, or painted cardboard. Some parents of the audience might empathise. This group from the Onehunga Congregational Church are at a camp in Whatapu. The, homemade -like, the homemadeness of the costumes is evident. The chap in the front with there looks like he's wearing striped pyjamas with a paper ruff, uh, whereas our Māori wahine there, she has a blanket and a woven bandeau around her head. I quite like the cowboy as well, he's done a good job. <laughs> Next, I'd like to show you a couple of fancy dress costumes which have survived and are now part of, Can of New Zealand Museum collections. These costumes have come from Canterbury Museum. This magnificent Elizabethan-style fancy dress was worn by Mrs Lucy Studholm to a ball at Government House in the 1870s. Lucy's husband John was a member of the provincial government, the Canterbury Provincial Council, and later a member of the New Zealand Parliament. Lucy would have been in her mid to late 30s when she wore this gown. Obviously, a ball at Government House was a very grand affair, and the unofficial competition for being the best dress would have been fierce. And this dress would have been expensive to make. It is made from soft plush velvet with sealskin. The sleeves, bodice, and rush, ruff are edged in heavy point lace, and you can see the ruff is bone, so it stands up high even after all this time. And this garment had had no conservation, so it hadn't been steamed into place or anything. Um, glass beads and paste pearls are used to a decorative effect all over the garment. And despite it being made to be worn for just one event, it's incredibly well constructed and it stands up to close scrutiny. The dress was worn with a crinoline and a tiara. The dress was loaned to the museum and displayed during the Canterbury Regional Centenary of 1950. It was also worn during the Cavalcade of Fashion, which was a historical fashion parade styled by Canterbury Museum's honorary curator of costume, Miss Rose Reynolds. So here's a photograph of the gown being worn by the model Ruth Collins in 1950. And you can really see the richness of the velvet underneath the stage lights. On closer, closer examination of the actual garment, you can see the slight alterations that have been made for its outing in 1950. Additional rows of hooks and eyes and snap fasteners have been added to the bodice, and the gown is really heavy to carry, let alone to wear. Reynolds later arranged for many of the items loaned for the cavalcade of fashion to be permanently gifted to the museum. This was one of those items, and it came to the museum in 1951, gifted by Mrs. Eleanor Johnson, a descendant of Lucy Studholm. So parades and pageants were another excuse to don fancy dress costumes. The mid-20th century was a busy time for New Zealand towns and cities celebrating their centenaries. Many celebrations included local people dressed in often real 19th century clothing, parading behind traction engines and flower-laden floats depicting the colonial history of the town. These ladies are representing Farmer's Department Store at the Timaru Centennial Parade of 1959. I don't understand the rocket. Um, <laughs> You may be able to spot a 1950s bathing suit juxtaposed with a 19th century one, and I think that's what they're doing with the, the day dress and then the frock with the black hat as well.
time for another kind of fancy dress. You've already seen an example. You'll remember Our Lady with the villa headgear from the beginning. She is wearing what was known as a poster ball costume or a human poster costume. Poster balls, these are something that certainly don't exist nowadays. Poster balls started in New Zealand in 1900 after successful events in Australia and England inspired similar activities. The balls were fundraising opportunities where guests attended in fancy dress but were sponsored by corporates to wear costumes advertising their products. The company or organisation paid the entry fee for the competition and contributed materials for the costume. The winner would receive the glory and the sponsor some good publicity. Many poster ball costumes were disposable, made for one event and then discarded. It was a really popular fundraising activity throughout the first part of the 20th century. A quick search for papers passed on the exact phrase poster ball between 1900 and 1920 brought up more than 700 records. So this is a very typical costume. This young lady is advertising Allsbrook chocolates. Her costume appears to be comprised of product packaging, which was very common for poster dresses. And this is a uh, display of um, different costumes from a poster ball held in Woodville in 1905. The women advertise a number of local businesses, including Dresden Pianos and Cambridge Clothing. Our winner was Miss Speedy, who is the lady down here, who um, ironically was representing Chalmers Brothers who sold bicycles. It took me a while to realise that she's not holding like animal horns, it's actually a bicycle handlebars on a staff. Now here is quite an unusual photograph, which is a um, group photograph of a poster ball. This was held in Mangere East, probably in about 1930, which is quite late for the poster ball fad, but we can see that people are definitely advertising specific products. First of all, we have the Michelin man. <laughs> um, he's lost his pinsnees since um, the 1930s. He's no longer portrayed like that. And um, a woman advertising mobile oil. We also have uh, Yates Seeds and O'Leary Brothers and Downs, who are another seed company. Now we've looked at lots of photos of poster ball dresses, so let's see an actual garment. Unlike many poster ball dresses, which were made from calico, crepe, paper or product packaging, this garment is made from red satin. The dress was worn by Miss Banks when she won first prize in the human poster competition at the Canterbury Cricket Association's Floral Fate. Held in Lancaster Park on Saturday the 19th of December 1908, the Floral Fate was a fundraiser for the Cricket Association and it was all about dressing up. The cricketers played in costume. One team was called the Hard Ups and were dressed as swaggers. Others were Dutchmen, Old Darlings in frocks and sunbonnets, another opportunity for drag and I'm afraid to say the yellow peril. Political correctness was not paramount to the event. Another of the human posters at the fete was a Ceylon tea girl who was beautifully dressed but blacked up. But back to the dress. The press noted of the human poster competition that the display was one of unusual excellence from an artistic as well as advertising point of view. Miss Banks also carried a banner proclaiming the Canterbury Times and wore a picture hat with a star for the Christchurch Star, the sister newspaper to the Canterbury Times. So obviously, Miss Banks was sponsored by the Canterbury Times and the red satin is overprinted with the front page of the newspaper for the 16th of December 1908, which was the intended day for the fate and it was postponed due to bad weather. 
But she was lucky. In those days, the front page of the paper carried advertisements and notices rather than the news headlines that we expect today. The text includes advertisements for a number of Christchurch companies and products, including Minson's, which was a department store, Allsbrook's Milk Arrowroot Biscuits, KJM, Smith's Patent Chouettes, Nelson Moet's Tea, and Beanstalk Cocoa. The fabric of the underskirts and part of the bodice is made of cotton and has also been printed with newsprint. The garment is of extremely high quality to have been made and worn for a single event. Making its survival even more impressive are the split pins that you see in old archival documents to hold them together that feature down the long sides of the skirt, which could have caused serious damage to the garment over the last 111 years. Somehow they haven't even rusted. Um, the dress came to Canterbury Museum in 1971 from Mrs. Lila Webster. We don't know who the seamstress was, but it was made to a high standard and quickly. It looks like the fabric was actually run through the newspaper press to be printed, which is pretty fantastic. So I mentioned the Canterbury cricketer's floral fate. Um, back to the idea of dressing up for cricket or other sports. This fundraising cricket match in Christchurch was known as a Dan Leno cricket match, named for a British music hall actor who arranged cricket matches between comedians in the 1890s to raise funds for charity. The concept took up in, off in New Zealand as well, as demonstrated by two sporting events held here in Auckland. First up, we have the Waiuku football, rugby football team in 1895. Among the costumes, we have a strongman, a harlequin, a black and white minstrel, Robin Hood, and a man in Turkish costume. At least three men are in blackface, and several are dressed in women's clothes. The wearing of another gender's clothing is common in many of these photographs, and I wonder if that was because it was an easy option, or whether it was an opportunity to break some rules around propriety. And here are the uh, participants of a fancy dress lacrosse match held on the North Shore on the 6th of October, November 1900. The event began with a parade through Devonport to the Domain and included an exhibition game of lacrosse, probably in these costumes. One costume we've seen again and again in these group photographs is that of a clown. Clown costumes were a very popular form of fancy dress throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. Adults as well as children will clone clown costumes for various purposes, sometimes as performers, like the New Zealand digger periods, who entertained the troops during the First World War. And here is Eldon Clark, dressed up for an Armistice Day parade, and he's got a Union Jack on the centre of his uniform, his outfit. Um, these two cuties are from New Plymouth, and they're probably dressed up for either wartime fundraising or for peace celebrations in 1919. Of course, children in the past and present love to dress up, and fancy dress birthday parties, discos, and other events are always popular. There are quite a few examples of children's dress-up costumes in Auckland Museum and New Zealand museum collections, especially at Te Papa. These are usually homemade and often made of crepe paper. In the 21st century, one of the more popular forms of dress-up is cosplay. Dressing as a superhero, a movie character, or even a My Little Pony is embraced by young and old. And I'll let you know, I'll let you decide if the next costume is cosplay or something else. Because Canterbury Museum has collected the costume of an actual superhero, Flatman. Flatman came to the rescue of many Canterbury folk after the devastating 2011 earthquakes. He was the fairy godmother to many students and families for over 18 months, dropping off care packages of food and toilet paper to Christchurch homes. 
Flatman's motto is be a love, be a bruv, share the love. And the museum is proud to have the costume in its collection. And this is him handing it over. Constructed by Flat Mum, Flat Man, <laughs> Flat Man's costume consists of a very stretchy onesie, a cape, and a Mexican-style wrestling, Mexican wrestling-inspired helmet. The elements of Flatman's costume are typical of any superhero outfit, a cape for flying or flouncing, a stretchy flexible garment to allow for daring deeds, and a mask to protect your identity. Apparently Flatman is the only person in New Zealand has allowed to travel in a mask. And even in the museum records, Flatman's identity is protected, with the maker of the costume literally recorded as Flat Mum in the museum database. Kiwi ingenuity shines through, even in the most limited circumstances. And these photographs and costumes help us understand what New Zealanders did for fun 100 years ago. They give us insights into the skills of dressmakers and home sewers and demonstrate the creativity of New Zealand makers. And the costumes also show us that some things are unchanging. Humans, whether they are adults or children, love to play dress up. Um, so what this lady's been showing me is a young girl who's dressed up as a Christmas cracker. Um, and so, and she's still alive. Yes. It'd be great if she remembers. I'm asked her a question. She said her mother made the outfit, and I never thought to ask her where she was actually going. <laughs> they lived in Takapuna, so it's probably a children's Christmas We hope you enjoyed this talk. Please join us again here on soundcloud.com and explore more of Auckland Library's podcast content.